This episode of Dear Hank and John is brought to you by Blue Land. Did you know that uh, about 5 billion, billion? That's a de- I checked that because that's a lot. Plastic hand soap and cleaning bottles are thrown away every year. And if that's not bad enough, most cleaning formulas are 90% water, which is heavy. We're shipping around all this water using fuel when we don't have to. Every year, Americans throw away 25% more trash from Thanksgiving to New Year. This year, maybe turn the New Year's resolution into action that makes a difference by switching to Blue Land. Blue Land is on a mission to eliminate single-use plastic by reinventing cleaning essentials to be better for you and the planet with the same powerful clean you're used to. It's a simple idea. They have refillable cleaning products. They have a nice design. I have them in my home. It looks nice on your counter. You fill the reusable bottles with water, drop in the Blue Land tablets, wait for them to dissolve, and you never have to grab bulky, heavy cleaning supplies on your grocery run ever again. And refills, because they're small and you don't have to ship a bunch of water across the country, starts at just $2.25. You can even set up a subscription or buy in bulk for additional savings. From cleaning sprays to hand soap, toilet bowl cleaner, and laundry tablets, Laundry tablets, everybody, you know what I mean. All Blue Land products are made with clean ingredients that you can feel good about. Blue Land is trusted in over a million homes, including, yeah, mine. Blue Land has a special offer for listeners right now. You can get 15% off your first order by going to blueland.com slash dearhank. You won't want to miss it. Blueland.com slash dearhank for 15% off. Again, blueland.com slash dearhank to get 15% off. Welcome to Dear Hank and John. Yours, I prefer to think of it, Dear John and Hank. It's a podcast where two brothers answer your questions, give you dubious advice, and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. John, I I needed to get some work done on my house, and there's a guy in town who has a lot of crossbred dogs, mm-hmm. and he seems like he's going to be, he's like totally up to the task. Yeah. Or in other words, the labradoodle doodle do. The labradoodle doodle do. It's, it's okay. It's okay. Thanks. I found it on the internet. <laughs> it it smells like it was found on the internet. <laughs> Hank, do you remember in a recent episode of the podcast, I said that I would attend any nearby wedding that had an open bar that I was invited to by any <laughs> listeners of this podcast? I do remember you saying that. Now, I don't like to criticize our listeners, Hank. I think it's bad for business. And also, I think by and large, our, our listeners are nice people. Mm-hmm. But I was pretty clear. I was pretty specific. I said that the wedding had to be within 45 minutes and it had to have an open bar. I was very specific about these two <laughs> things. Uh-huh. I got in, I got invited to so many lovely weddings mm-hmm. in Georgia, yep. Wisconsin, okay. all over, really all over Earth. I got invited to so many lovely weddings. I did get invited to one wedding in Indianapolis. Uh-huh. Uh but it was it was the day after the email was sent. And I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't make yeah. plans like way ahead of time, but I do tend to, I do tend to make plans more than 12 hours in advance. That's not their fault. It's not their fault that I, I made this announcement late. Um, so, and, and then there are a couple others that were relatively local, but that I just won't be able to attend because I had some plans. So far, at least I'm still at zero weddings. Thank you for all the lovely Man. invitations. I, I do I do hope to go to a wedding sometime this fall. I also realized that I I missed 
wedding season. You know, like the core wedding season. If I should have made, I should have made this announcement in like February. Well, here's what here's what I'm hearing, John, is less that you are in the wrong season, less that like people are people are too far away. What I'm hearing is a lack of commitment to the bit. You all right? You. I, you, okay. you had You're several right. opportunities and you had something more right. important going on that day. You're right. Okay. I should abandon my children and their <laughs> needs to commit to the bit. I sh- You're right. You're right. I forgot that the bit uh-huh. look, above all. Look, if you're going to invite yeah. John to the wedding, you also need to invite his kids to the wedding. And, <laughs> and their soccer teams um, because the soccer game has to happen at the wedding. Oh, so just yeah. just prep for that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but anyway, thank you all very much for your wedding invitations. I desperately wish I could go to more of these weddings. Keep them coming, honestly. They make me very happy. It's it's just good to know that there are nice things happening on Earth right now. I need that encouragement in our inbox, so thank you. This first question, Hank, comes from Nat, who writes, Dear John and Hank, why do people say they are humbled when something good happens to them? Like when somebody wins an award, they might say, I'm so humbled to be here tonight or something like that. Why would that experience make you feel humble? Wouldn't it make you feel the opposite? Not the bug, Nat. Boy, yeah, I get up on that stage and be like, I am so emboldened to be here. (laughs) I have never felt more prideful than in this, my crowning moment. (laughs) What is that? What does it mean? Is it like the institutions around you? That like this, like these big things that have been going on and they have a lot of, uh, of, of value in your world. And so you are having, you are getting invited into that. And that feels very humbling to be like in the presence of all the other people who have gotten that award maybe. So I've only had this experience once or twice. Yeah. I'll be honest. Usually when I'm on stage in front of a lot of people who are uh, like happy to see me, uh-huh. I do not feel at my most humble, you know, <laughs> yeah. like I, I feel I feel most humble when I am like uh, faced with a circumstance that I can do nothing about uh-huh. except to like, yeah. you know, get on my knees and and pray. Yeah. Like that's that's <laughs> when I feel profound humility and and my smallness and my powerlessness and so on. Mm-hmm. But I do, there have been a couple times in my life, and I don't know if this is true for you, Hank, there have been a couple times when either accepting an award or being in the presence of people I really look up to, and maybe that, I think, I think you've hit it. I do feel not, not quite the same sort of humility that, that one wants to feel in life, but I do feel, I, I have felt like really overwhelmed by the moment and conscious of my uh my smallness my 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 frailness or or whatever and 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 just maybe 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 what people really mean is they feel like a sense of wonder in that moment like the time that comes to mind I'll just tell you about it okay in 2002 my friend Amy Krauss Rosenthal uh had an evening where she organized what she called a writer's block party and lots of different writers read. And I was one of one of them. Mm-hmm. And this was the first time I'd read in front of an audience, I think, period, or certainly since college. And, you know, at the end of the night, I remember 
just coming home and and being in tears because I just I I it felt so it felt so wonderful to have had that opportunity to have had that moment to be able to have like shared that with all the people who were in the theater and it did feel adjacent to humility mm-hmm. it didn't quite feel like proper humility but like I I I that's what I think of it didn't quite feel like proper humility, but that's what I think about when I hear people say that. But I, I find it pretty cringe, to be honest, when people say it like at the Tonys or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I've looked up the definition of humbled, made less proud or lowered in condition. And it's, it's just literally the opposite of the thing that happened. Yeah. I have been made more proud and been raised in condition by this award. <laughs> Like that was the, it's almost like an insult. Like, so you gave me this award and I feel not proud. And as if my stature has been lowered by this honor. Okay. I'm trying, I'm really trying hard to play devil's advocate here. Although I think that your argument is a lot more convincing. It's like in those like middle school debate tournaments when you've got the wrong side yeah, of the yeah, issue. You, get, you have to, you have to fight the, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, but is there something about like being in the presence of 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 no uh, forget it there's no I, I can't do it i tried what, i tried really this? hard what if it, what if it's like uh, i i stand here on this stage and i realize that that i don't deserve this honor is that what it, it's like it's such a big honor there's no way that someone such as i could deserve and maybe it. that is maybe, that there and maybe that no one deserves it like i've always I've always heard that about people when they get elected president or whatever, that they feel genuinely humbled. Like they feel like lowered in stature because they realize in that moment the like size of the responsibility, Mm, the size of the office. And that like it isn't them as individuals that's really central to this story, but the, you know, the, the, the office itself. So I don't feel as if I live up to I, I, I don't feel as if I. I or really any person could live up to that to that thing. And so I think it probably comes from like uh, like when you when someone has been extra generous to you and you actually maybe don't deserve that level of generosity or forgiveness, that that could be humbling. And you could say, I'm humbled by that generosity. Yes, I like that. You that's where it comes from. You ended up making both sides of the argument for me. And I really appreciate that. (laughs) I am deeply humbled by the skill you used (laughs) in making those arguments. I have been appropriately lowered in stature. Hank, what would you say (laughs) if you were elected pope? Would you say I am deeply humbled by this honor? I would get up on that stage and I would say I am deeply confused by this honor. You know, everybody always says this is a weird call. You know, everybody always like I like weird. I like like just being random and goofy. Like I'm a fan of that. But you guys have gone way overboard. This is like Douglas Adams right now. Yeah, I listen. I love an unexpected award, but I'm not sure about this one. (laughs) I I am unexpectedly uh, in need of a great deal of education (laughs) by this award. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna need to learn Latin fast. And you've never been great. Like, I'm gonna need to know a lot more about saints. Yeah, you've never been great at foreign languages either. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I'm, I'm a little bit fuzzy on like, uh, the, the who all the people Just are. The basics. I could name, I could name ten or twelve. <laughs> yeah, you'd be like, so real quick, what is our sacred scripture? And uh, how, how, how seriously do we take it? <laughs> which, which bit of Super it? Super serious. So. 
Are are you sure that their names are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Because that sounds like like characters in Beverly Hills 90210. It just sounds very American for <laughs> having happened 2,000 years ago <laughs> in Mesopotamia. It just feels a little like... Yeah, like Matthew? Yeah, John, John has always seemed to be like a very American uh-huh. name, you know? Yeah, jo- Joseph, just Joe and Mary, yeah, Joe really? And, Joe and Matt and Mary. So I, I, I would not be surprised. I feel like I've been waiting for that call my whole life, you know, just to get poked up. Yeah, like I, I, I feel like I'd be like I, I'm ready. Mm. Let's do you this. You know, your, your, your getting poked is my getting a call from the CIA and them being like, "We know that you're going on this trip, and we need you to do a mission for us." Oh, I've always just kind of expected that. Really? Come on, you guys. Oh. Yeah, I can't. I, I probably would say no because that sounds very stressful. But, but like, I don't know. Like, I seem like I seem like I would be a very good spy. Uh, right? No one agrees with me in my private life. Only I think this. Yeah, I mean, I, respectfully, I I think I might be a better spy than you, and I would be a mm. terrible spy. I agree that you would be bad. Why do you? Th- well, okay, now I think I would be good. <laughs> I don't like I don't like the way you sounded at all when you said that. Why do you think I would be a bad spy? Because it's scary. You have to do really, really. Oh no, no, no. The ner- no, no. The nervous thing, the anxiety thing. Are you kidding? That is such an asset to 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 me as a spy. Okay, like patience. Well, not even that. Just like people would be like, well, that guy can't be a spy. I've seen his YouTube videos. I read the Anthropocene Reviewed. Like that guy doesn't have any spying in him. He. You know, he can't even handle like a dinner party with six people. There's no way that he's going to be able to like transmit the big uh, information Mm -hmm. via an SD card implanted inside of his retina. But I can. Uh I can because I contain multitudes. Things that make me anxious don't make other people anxious and vice versa. Right, right, right. So you've got all your anxiety tied up in whether or not you're going to get a brain-eating amoeba. Yeah. And none tied up in whether or not the Russians are going to find your SD card planted in your eyeball. So much about the brain-eating amoeba. Sorry, I didn't hear the rest of the sentence because I was so distracted. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I, I, I think very similarly about me, which is like, oh, Hank, he's goofy, he's fun, he's silly. But then, surprise! <laughs> no, I just poured iodine powder not. in your drink. <laughs> no, no. I mean, first off. Uh, nobody who's good at being a spy brags about being good at being a spy. Nobody who's good at being a spy goes on <laughs> yeah. a podcast and says, I think I would make a good spy. Yeah. The CIA <laughs> is listening and they're like, we were going to use both of them. <laughs> well, the other thing, though, Hank, is that like in real life, being a spy is mostly about getting people to talk about stuff that they don't want to talk about. Yeah. And I know this because I have been uh, interviewed, I guess would mm-hmm. be the word, yep. by a spy. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. a fascinating thing happened, which is that I felt as if I had drank truth serum, even though I hadn't. Like, <laughs> I felt like I had a, a moral and legal obligation yeah. to tell this person Mm-hmm. everything <laughs> yeah everything it's a weird thing where when when people ask you a question it's like 
it's very hard to not answer them. Yeah, and also they're just really good at phrasing the question in certain ways. Like, have you ever been called about mm. when somebody's getting like a background check to get like top secret clearance and they they list you as like one of their neighbors or friends or whatever? I have not. That sounds cool. I've gotten a few of those calls over the years and every time I'm like, wow, I can't shut up. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, you sound like you'd be a great spy. Like, like, like this CIA agent is having to cut me off because they're busy. <laughs> <laughs> I will share everything you want to know. Yeah, I, I, I could, I could see that, and I could, I could see you being a, a person that someone would want to talk to for a long time about, and like sort of unload on a little bit. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I don't. I, Hank, I think, I, I think that we are not humbling ourselves enough in this entire conversation. Like neither of us would be very good spies. Look, one time, I got a call about a neighbor for a, like a background check investigation because they were uh, going into a kind of high, highish ranking government mm-hmm. job. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were like, do you think he holds any extreme views? And I was like, I mean, you got to define extreme for me. And that kind of like, I, he, he holds a lot of views that I, I, I find like, I find him to be rather extreme on the subject of like how often you should cut the grass. Yeah. He does it every Friday, no matter what, you know, I like, think the that... bears are going to win the Super Bowl. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that should disqualify him from government work, but like I, I find it I a little know. over the top. <laughs> What was the um, question? The, Thanks we, for we, I, we did a good job. We did great. a good job of sh- of showing people exactly how humbled we are not, um, which I oh, never propo- purpo- proposed to be. I don't mind. Was that the right word? Yeah, that's one one of the keys of another sign of mm-hmm. humble people is that they don't brag a lot about uh-huh, their humility. Uh huh. Which hey, I don't because I'm aware. Of my situation. Yeah. This next question comes from Anonymous, who asks, Dear Hank and John, I just got my first job working at an unnamed global sandwich-making restaurant. Mm. There's really only like four options here. And I... I just had lunch there. (laughs) And I need your help. I'm writing uh, to you an hour after my first shift, and I am exhausted. My feet hurt. My hands are tired. Oh, yeah. How do people do Mm. this? I need this job to pay for uni. Okay, so now we know another thing about you, Anonymous. You got to be more mm. careful. Okay, uh, we're we're narrowing it down. You're talking to a couple spies here right now, and I'm going to continue working <laughs> once school starts. But I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I know that you both worked fast food before. I I have not, and at least one of you works all the time. <laughs> Any advice on how to not hate my life while doing this job would be appreciated. Eat fresh, anonymous. Okay. Okay. Now, now I right. really, now I really cracked the code. Yeah, we could <laughs> potentially. We would have I, their email I, address. I, that would also. <laughs> yeah. A huge security slip. Thank you. Such a good spy. How how are you? <laughs> <laughs> What a you get a terrible security <laughs> error by emailing us from yeah. your real email address, not using Proton Mail or whatever. <laughs> We've you got fool. you. We've got you pegged. I've worked at several restaurants, including sandwich shops, and I remember, especially on the the first few days at a new job, you just have a yeah. different kind of tired because you're standing up for mm-hmm. eight or ten hours, and most people aren't used yep. used to doing that. It is exhausting. It never gets less exhausting. The first. I, I, well, 
it, it, it is exhausting and there's no getting around that. But the first thing I'd say is talk to your coworkers because in my experience anyway, there's a difference between like shoes that are comfortable yeah. for walking around in and shoes that are comfortable for standing in for eight hours when you're working at a restaurant mm-hmm. or walking around for eight hours on that like restaurant yep. hard floor. And your coworkers may have really good shoe advice, which I think mm-hmm. it can be key. And then the other thing is that it, it yeah. does get easier as you, you kind of develop that sort of fitness, you know, uh-huh. like there's a certain kind of, I mean, for me anyway, the first few days that I worked at Steak and Shake, I was yeah. so tired when I would get home and then slowly I, I it, it got a little more normal. Yeah, it is a, it is a, a physical, like just standing is a physical activity. Oh, and if you don't so much. do it a lot. I mean, like if if you asked me to to like do my job at Walmart right now, well, first I'm older, yeah. but second, just like like straight up, I don't know that I could stand for that long. I would need to ease into it before I could, you know, and then like I would develop that that kind of standing fitness again and like it would be OK. But yeah, oh, my God, it is uh, a lot to stand for, you know eight hours in a day, even if you have some breaks mixed in. Yeah. So I would talk to your coworkers, get tips and tricks and talk to other people, you know, who work in food service or in similar jobs, because those those people tend to be the experts about how to move through it in the best way. Absolutely. All right, Nick, we have another question. This one is from Amelia who writes, Hey y'all. So I recently found an old book of temporary tattoos on my shelf. And then one day I started stressing out about the future and such. And the next thing I knew I was applying a lot of them all over my arms and feet. (laughs) And now I have a lot of glitter tattoos, like several dozen. My first day back to school is soon. And uh, I haven't seen these people in two years on account of COVID, and I was hoping for some dubious <laughs> advice as to whether I should lean in uh-huh. to these sparkly skull tattoos all over my body, or if people might get weirdly intimidated, parsley and potatoes, Melia. <laughs> don't think you have to worry about people getting overly intimidated by your sparkly skull tattoos. Maybe you were indicating that that was not a real fear, but you may you may experience some... Let's just say uh, prejudgment. So, 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 like you're giving yeah. people more to work with, and 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 that isn't something that people have an immediate like uh, like sort of slot to assign you to. There isn't like mm-hmm. a, a kind of person who has a lot of sparkly glitter temporary tattoos. So you might people mm-hmm. might be a little confused, but I don't like I don't know. There's nothing wrong with confusing people. Uh, you can you can throw them some curveballs here and there. I've certainly been known to do that. Here's what I think, Melia. I think if you're going to be a great spy, you want to have one one thing that people notice, right? Mm. And it has to be something that you can change so that when later the CIA is interviewing witnesses about you, they'll be like, did you notice anything about the spy? Mm -hmm. And the witnesses will all say, I noticed this glittery skull tattoo underneath her chin and, <laughs> and that's all that's all they saw that's all they're gonna remember yeah you know 
So I think from a spying perspective, it's a definite win to have a lot of weird temporary tattoos. From a going back to school after two years away perspective, I'm a little more concerned just because I don't know about you, Hank, but like when the first day of school would be coming up, I would have a lot of ambitious ideas about how I was going to like dress and look and how I was going to just kind of be a different person that year. Yeah. And then it would all collapse within like five seconds of walking through sure. the door of Glenridge Middle School. Oh, yeah. For me, it collapsed in my mind before I even put the clothes on. Like, I I, I would right. be like, oh, I can't, can't. I look at myself in the mirror and I'd be like, that's not, that's not me. Right. Let's put on that old giraffe shirt again. <laughs> right. So what's actually going to happen is that you're going to have, you're going to be talking a big game inside your mind. And then you're going to have to wake up at like four o'clock in the morning on the first day of school to scrub off all those temporary tattoos because you're going to freak out. <laughs> At least if you're like us. Yeah. That is, yeah, that's, that's a great point, John. Mila, no matter what, what's going to happen is you're going to scrub those tattoos off. So why not just do it the night before? Yeah, that way you can sleep a little later. The question is whether, <laughs> whether you do it now or you do it at four o'clock in the morning uh, when you can't sleep because you're freaking out about how people are going to judge you for your temporary tattoos. Right. Which they probably wouldn't even do. No, because they're going to be so busy thinking about themselves. About them, their, their own selves. Yes. Which is another thing about being a spy, not to make it the spy kids spectacular. But another thing about being yeah. a spy is that great spies mm -hmm. are conscious of the fact that other people are thinking about themselves. John, it feels... If and Hank, mm -hmm. with all due respect, I think that sometimes both of us can maybe lose a little bit of sight <laughs> about the fact that other people are thinking about issues unrelated to us. Mm. And I think that's another spot where we might need to work on our skills if we ever really want to be good spots. It's, I can't help but notice, John, that it seems like you've thought a lot about what it takes to be a spy. Yeah. It, it feels it feels it feels like uh it feels like maybe you've thought about this even more than me. It feels like you've thought about this like on par with brain eating amoebas. Well, I mean, I guess what I would say about it is that if I had worked or might work as a spy in some capacity, it would be something that I had mm -hmm. thought a lot about. John, what is the, the fatality rate of a brain-eating amoeba infection? So it's not 100% uh, because there have been a couple of people who have survived it, but it is over oh. 90%. So I just want everybody to know that he's not making this up. And I was, that was my, that was. Oh yeah, no, I know a lot. I know my, a lot about brain-eating amoebas for sure. I know the last time someone in Indiana okay. died of the, I know a lot about brain-eating amoebas. Yeah. And it is a source of concern for me. Um, yeah. At, yeah, and, and and I recognize that it is not the most likely way for my life to end. Uh huh. But it's not. It's not zero. It's not zero, and it's terrible. So let's move on. It, but so are most of the ways. This question comes from Meg, who asks, "Brothers, why is hold music still so janky?" Oh my god! All the best, Meg. Why? What? Why? Why? I've been I've been on hold. I I don't know. I guess at the same service for for uh. D over a decade now, mm -hmm. where I hear the same hold music that I've been listening to for a decade. But now the only thing that's changed in the case of the company that I call the most often and spend the most time on hold with, which is my insurance mm -hmm. company, the only thing that's changed in the last 10 years is that now a voice interrupts the unbelievably terrible uh, yeah. hold music periodically uh -huh. to say that mm -hmm. You, your car, call will be answered in the order it was dialed, which like, if that weren't true, 
I would be horrified. So like I I assume as much, right? Like and, and just the fact that you mentioned it to me has made me doubt, you know? Like why would you mention that? Oh my god, your call is very important to us. Right. And it also, like, the more times I hear it, the less I believe it. Yeah. Because it's like, well, you've said this to me a lot. Right. Like, usually when somebody thinks something, they don't have to tell me (laughs) 10 times in the space of 10 minutes, unless maybe I'm getting some other signals that that actually might not be the case. Right. Like, imagine if you were, like, out to dinner with Catherine, and every three minutes, Catherine said, you are very important to me. I'd be like, okay. You'd be like, well, right. I mean, uh, so I get, uh, what, so what's the problem? And every time <laughs> my insurance company says your call is very important to us, I think to myself, is it? Yeah. Is it? But let's get to this hold music issue, Hank, because it is also a source of concern for me. There is a lot of good music, and I know that you can listen to it because it is available mm-hmm. on every imaginable streaming service. Yes. I would much, much rather mm-hmm. somehow have to listen to ads like I do for Pandora every 12 minutes while holding and be able to choose my hold music. Sure. Like, that's a billion-dollar idea. Sure. Well, I mean, but there, there – so, like, I think there is something to this, that there is something about – uh, the services that that do this, that cost is the most important thing. And so in, it's like it's like toilet paper at home. We all buy toilet paper that is nice. Not everybody. We, and like Not you everybody. can't buy toilet paper as bad. You literally cannot buy toilet paper as bad as you get if you sit down to go to the bathroom in the grocery store. Right. Like. You cannot buy that toilet paper. It is a different market. You, like the only, like it's not for sale to consumers. And your theory, it's only for sale. Your theory is that that toilet paper is designed to make you not love going to the bathroom at the grocery store. No. Oh no. My theory is that the grocery store's priority is not my butt. Their their priority is the cost of the toilet paper. And the people who are buying the the hold music companies, they look at the hold music companies and they say, who's the cheapest one? That's the only thing that they think about. Or the people who like, it's probably more complicated than that. There's pro- it's probably not like, it's probably packaged in with a bunch of other services that is, are provided by some contractor that helps make the phone systems work. And so you look at it and you're like, okay, what, like who, who's the cheapest one? And the features you're looking for are very specific features for like, for integration with your customer support software, not uh, the hold music. And so it's just not an, it's an important thing to the consumer, but not to the person who's paying for the product. So like there is, there is a step in between. It's just like the toilet paper at the grocery store. I don't think it's just, this is what I think. I think it's a little different because at the grocery store is not primarily in the business of providing toilet paper. Oh God. That is it. That you is the exact, one? that is the music that I listen to. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I even know how you got that hold music. I know what number you dialed and I know what code you put in. <laughs> I just I actually just typed in freeconferencecalls.com uh, hold music because that is the conference <laughs> call software that we use. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah, it is. It's so bad. And I, every time, every time it starts up again, I think to myself, like, they could be playing a Love Supreme by John Coltrane. Like, there is no yeah. reason. It's not like, like, there's there any number of things that they could be playing where I would be like, ah. Oh. But instead, it puts me in a sort of, like, heightened state 
a little bit of misery and it's terrible background music. So like when you're on hold for 45 minutes yeah. and you're driving with someone, like that's gotta be the music. Whereas it should be like you're you on hold for 45 minutes and you get to choose your Pandora station or yeah. at least like pick something that someone likes because no disrespect to that whole music, but like mm-hmm. nobody on earth would choose that as the sound. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, literally, John, I th- like if I... My customer experience would be so dramatically improved by a thing that says, if you want to change the music, press seven. Like, yeah. how, that can't possibly be difficult. Right. It can't possibly be difficult. Yeah. And then they give you some options. Would you like to listen to jazz? Would you like to listen to uh, pop music? What for the, would you like the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s? 2010s or today, apparently, is what we have to say now. I would be fine with just, hey, if you hit seven, the hold musical switch, and I'd hit seven. And it just switches. And then if I didn't like it, I'd hit seven again. And I'd just hit seven until eventually we get to a love supreme. Give me something to do. (laughs) I mean, this is that, like, I I know good ideas, John. That is a good idea. Like, the fact that no hold, hold company... No, like, telephone system management company has had that idea, yeah. which is not, can't possibly be difficult to implement, indicates to me that there's just a, a either a monopoly there or just a tremendous amount of stagnation in the industry. Hank, when I heard you say, I know good ideas with the level of confidence <laughs> with which you said the sentence, I couldn't help but think how humbled you must be I am so, to know good ideas. I'm so humbled by <laughs> the power of my own brain, John. <laughs> It is so powerful that it really, it just makes me feel in awe of being in its presence. Yeah, nothing makes me feel humility, like just having to grapple with my own individual genius, just being in its company (laughs) is a truly humbling experience. And then, and I walk out onto the stage to get my award for guy who knows good ideas. And you know what? (laughs) Hello, everybody. Thank you so much. I am humbled to be on the stage. Oh, God. I'm so I'm so glad you got that award, Hank. Congratulations. This next question comes from Jake, who writes, Dear John and Hank, Tomatoes are one of my favorite foods, Mm. and recently I was thinking about them and their heavy association with Italy. They've got pizza sauce, marinara, possibly more foods based off tomatoes that I don't know about. But didn't tomatoes originate in the Americas? Wouldn't this mean that Italians would have only had tomatoes for like a few hundred years? Is that really enough time to build up a deep identity? Why don't we associate tomatoes with the Americas? Jake the A-Train. John... Uh, let me tell Jake about this new book called The Anthropocene Reviewed, where you have identified (laughs) one of John's new areas of expertise, (laughs) tomatoes and the new world and old world. And, and the Columbian exchange more, more generally. Yes. Um, yeah. So there were no, not only were there no tomatoes, uh, in Afro-Eurasia until after the Columbian exchange began for the first, like couple hundred years after there were tomatoes in Europe, people thought they were poisonous because other members of the nightshade family are poisonous. And also because people would sometimes die after eating tomatoes, rich people would, but they weren't dying because of the tomatoes. They were dying because the acid in the tomatoes Mm. leached a lot of lead out of their lead plates. And so they died of acute lead poisoning. 
My God. Everybody, everybody had lead poisoning. Everybody had lead poisoning. Uh, so it's true that uh, tomatoes are not part of Italy's food culture a thousand years ago. It's also important to remember that a lot of the cultural associations we have, both culinary and otherwise, would not have been possible before the Columbian Exchange. There were no horses in the Americas before the Columbian Exchange. There was no cassava in West Africa before the Columbian Exchange. There were no potatoes in Ireland. The world was just very different. Yeah. Well, and, and the second piece of this question is like, can you develop a deep cultural relationship with something in just a couple hundred years? And allow me to propose the the automobile, which we have a pretty big sort of sophisticated apparatus around and we have lots of different thoughts uh, about what different kinds of cars mean and how to make and and build and model like like ideas into vehicles. Soccer. That people will then buy. I don't know how long. Has soccer not been around nope. long? It seems like soccer's been around forever. I, I mean, depending on your definition, soccer as it is currently like, played uh, has only been around for about 170 years. And back then it was a vastly different game. Even basketball is the same way. Mm-hmm. Baseball, all of these things are less than 200 years old. There are so many things that we think of as being natural, the front lawn, mm-hmm. you know, that that aren't, that that are very, very recent And that is what I wrote the Anthropocene Reviewed about, was trying to grapple with the strange reality that all these things that feel natural or inevitable upon closer inspection prove not to be. Um, Yeah. And I also think that the uh, it does not take long, you know, for, for something to be a thing for like everyone who is currently alive, it only has to be a thing for 100 years. Yeah. With a with a couple of people on the edge of the bell curve. Yeah. To be like, I remember when there weren't tomatoes and really to be like, ah, that's not a thing. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Or those people seem like ancient history anyway. They seem so old that like I remember being a kid yeah. and my parents talking about like the the 1960s and like Woodstock and just being like, that is essentially the same thing as the 11th century. You know, like there's <laughs> every, yeah. all of human history before me sort of collapsed in my uh you know childhood imagination into sort of like one thing right and yeah and 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 now that is as far away that was as far away then as like in sync is now yeah oh god so oh man you want to know the one that blows my mind Uh uh-huh okay please hit me when teenagers today wear nirvana shirts that's not like you and me wearing a beatles shirt that's like you and me wearing an Elvis shirt. John, to me that that doesn't that doesn't do it because to me the Beatles and Elvis are the same because they all <laughs> the, they both happened in, in the 11th century. It was just like that's <laughs> they, yeah, they, them and Beethoven, you know? Like they're old. Yeah, I mean I like as as a teenager I would have never been able to tell you if Beethoven recorded music or I guess didn't record music, made music, whatever, whatever he did (laughs) in the the 19th century or in the 16th century. I genuinely could not have told you the, no, I would have. I mean, I don't know if I could tell you that right now. (laughs) (laughs) You do, you do not think it is possible that Beethoven. He he seems, he seems older than the 19th century. I'll say that. 
So it must be the other one. He died in 18, 1827. All right. And it, you cannot, you cannot think that Beethoven was recording music during the Renaissance. <laughs> totally or maybe you can. Don't. I don't know. Maybe you can. Okay, that's fine. Oh, that's fine. Oh no, no, no. I mean, if I thought about it long enough, maybe. But now I have the answer, so it all, it all seems clear. Yes. No, the first symphony first appeared in eighteen hundred. So very early nineteenth century. The earliest. You know, and he lived, obviously, much of his life in, in the 18th century. But no, he was uh, primarily an early 19th century okay. composer. And that's why you come to Dear Hank and John, because today's podcast is, of course, brought to you by Beethoven. <laughs> Beethoven, not just a dog in a children's movie I was recently forced to watch, <laughs> but also a, a musician. Okay. Well, yes. Um, and and this podcast is also brought to you by humility. Humility. It's that emotion that you feel when you have been honored so tremendously that you are now way too big for your britches and think that you're super clever despite not knowing which century Beethoven lived in. <laughs> that that was truly a humbling moment, Hank. And I appreciate I appreciate you allowing yourself to become vulnerable in that moment to us, and we will never judge you for it except for a little bit. Today's <laughs> podcast is also brought to you by Unnamed Global Sandwich Making Restaurant. Unnamed Global Sandwich Making Restaurant. Eat fresh. <laughs> Today's <laughs> podcast is also brought to you by Brain Eating Amoebas. Brain Eating Amoebas. Only a 90 plus percent chance of death. They. Oh, God. Okay, let's, yeah. We also have a Project Frost message from Vanessa Tien to Jasmine Zoe. I don't know how to write this message well because you're the person I would go to for stuff like this. Thank you <laughs> so much for being my best friend these past eight years. If I have done anything right in my life, it was meeting you. Thank you for adding love and nuance to my life. I hope you know how much I love and appreciate you. That is so lovely, Vanessa and Jasmine. Yeah. We hope that you are both well. And here's to adding love and nuance everywhere we go. What a lovely calling. So we all know there are things in life that you have to compromise on, but there are two things that you shouldn't compromise on. One is name brand Dr. Pepper. The off-brand stuff just doesn't hit the same. And another is, of course, your health. So don't go back to that one doctor who uses your appointment to catch up on the latest headlines or their family group chat or the crossword puzzles just because they're available right now or take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. And you can search by location, availability, and insurance. So literally, no compromises here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. You can filter specifically for ones who take your insurance, are located near you, and treat basically any condition you're searching for. And the typical wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is between 24 and 72 hours. So go to ZocDoc.com slash DearHank and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C.com slash DearHank. ZocDoc.com slash Dear Hank. Sometimes I like to imagine the world after us, the strange mammals that will emerge, the abundance of biodiverse plant life taking over our fields and factories and so on. 
I don't think this world will be better. I maintain that we are the most interesting thing to happen on Earth, and there is real beauty and meaning in our curiosity and compassion, even as we also cause and witness so much suffering. But at any rate, there will be a world after us, after each of us. And that's why there's life insurance. It exists to provide a financial safety net to those who love and count on you. Policy Genius's technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Policy Genius, because there will be a world without us. John, I have a uh, piece of information for the person who didn't know when the wedding was going to be. Yeah. Call the wedding venue. Yeah. Yeah, we got. They know. Yeah, we got a lot of a lot of people pointed out to us that we we could have we could have just recommended that they call the wedding venue instead of recommending that they show up at the parking lot at eight thirty in the morning and wait for the wedding. Our brains work at a on a different level than everybody else's. We don't. <laughs> it was really humbling, actually, to receive all those emails. <laughs> Correct. Correct. We also have a question from Pear who writes, Dear John and Hank, on your latest episode of your brilliant Top 5 podcast, what? Pear, what do you mean top five? <laughs> you mean because delete this at Anthropocene Reviewed might be better? <laughs> hmm. I was very, that's very humbling to read, Pear. You spoke at length about starting at a new school, and you kept saying this thing. Uh, I'm from Sweden. What is a home room? <laughs> <laughs> All right. I can see how that's a weird idea. What is a home room? I mean, I, the moment I read that question, I was like, great yeah. question, Pear. And I, want, I, I don't even know if other countries have this Well, thing. I didn't have it through the entirety of my... Uh, schooling either. Yeah, that's right. I had it in middle school and then I had it in ninth grade and I don't think I had it other than that, but a homeroom is where you go in the morning before your day starts. And as I recall, like nothing happens there except for bullying. Yeah, nothing, nothing. You sit discomfort. you, you read or like, I remember I used to braid hair. Yeah. In a homeroom. Yeah. That seems I would, plausible. I would braid my friend's hair. Sure. And like that's maybe the, that's the, like it was just a sort of socialization experience. Yeah, you'd do some a beading project or something, like make yeah. a bead necklace. Uh-huh. I I remember homeroom as being the least pleasant like 30 minutes of the day precisely because I didn't know what I was supposed to do and I didn't feel comfortable talking to anyone and everyone else was talking to everyone else and I would just be like, hmm, okay, well, yeah. here we are again, homeroom, love starting out the day this way. But at least in my memory pair, basically nothing happened in homeroom. Yeah, I, I wonder why homeroom exists. And I think that it probably exists like, one, you get everybody in the same place so that you can tell them about things that are going on maybe. Yeah. Uh, but, but like, I don't know why that can't just happen. Cause you like, you don't want to take up that time during the first class of the day. Yeah. So you do it in this 
other thing where you everybody's gathered just to like hear the announcements in the news, like have daily attendance taken. Right. There will be like people will get documents if you need to take a form home for something. Right. And also maybe you're sort of giving people a time to be a little bit late. Oh, that's what it was. Okay. Yeah, that all makes sense, Hank. That's what a homeroom is, Pear, we think. Yeah, it's just, it is a room you go to when you first get to to school that you are not taught in. All right, Hank, it's time for the most important part of the podcast, the news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon. And I'll go first because it was a huge weekend in AFC Wimbledon's history. It was the first game at our new stadium, Plow Lane, owned by the fans, back home where we belong in Wimbledon, in the community where the football club was founded over 130 years ago. It had been 30 years since Wimbledon played a proper home game in front of fans, and it was magical. Rosie, I was not able to be there, but Rosiana was there. She FaceTimed me from the game, and I watched with our dad, which was very special for me because uh, dad was also with us at Wembley when... Wimbledon got promoted up to the third tier of English soccer. And it was just amazing to see this beautiful stadium with 10,000 people in it to go from a stadium that sat, you know, like 2,500 people to this amazing state of the art place. It's just, it's just incredible. I was so proud. I was not humbled (laughs) and it was amazing. (laughs) It was really wonderful. I, I cried a lot right at the beginning. They held a minute's applause for, all the fans who weren't there um, to see that moment, you know, because in 30 years, a lot, you know, of mm-hmm. course, a lot of people died. A yeah. lot of people were thinking about their parents who'd brought them to their first Wimbledon games. A lot of people were thinking about friends and it was just um, really moving and lovely. And on the broadcast, the, the you know, screen streaming broadcast, the announcers talked about how even though those people are gone, they are still part of this story. And I think that's a really important thing, you know, to, to remember in any community that, um, you know, it's, it's for the people that you're sharing that experience with now, but it's also for all the people that you've shared it with before and all the people they shared it with going back to the beginning of, of that community. And it was just really, really special. Uh, the game itself was a bit of an afterthought, until it started, at which point it, I really wanted to win. <laughs> um, <laughs> and who should score uh, in the like 23rd minute, but Will Nightingale, our central defender who has been with Wimbledon since he was eight or nine years old. And it just, you could tell it meant the world to him. He scored a header and the camera zoomed in on him and his face was crumpling into tears. <laughs> I, I I know that he dreamt about that that moment from the time that he was a kid, and so it had to be him, and it was. And then Wimbledon went old school last season. Wimbledon and gave up two goals in two <laughs> minutes immediately after going oh, one nil up. Oh my god! And then I was like, I said to my dad, like, we just need Mark Robinson to get in there at halftime and yell at them a little bit. But the fans never stopped singing. They never stopped being into the game, even after. Uh, Bolton went up 3-1 at the beginning of the second half. The Wimbledon fans uh, were still singing. They were still uh, encouraging the team. It was beautiful to hear. 
Uh, they were singing Show Me the Way to Plow Lane. It was phenomenal. And and it did lead to an amazing comeback. First, Ayuba Saul, who nobody in League One has an answer for, was fouled in the box. And then Presley scored a wonderful penalty kick. And then just two minutes later, our new player on loan from Watford scored to make it 3-3. Plow Lane erupted. I have never... It was... <laughs> it was unbelievable. I was, like, shaking. I Just to be there with Dad, to be watching it together, to know that there were 10,000 people who had worked so hard together for this moment, and then to have the football also have this amazing comeback. And I, I really thought we were going to win then, because... I, I it just felt it it just felt inevitable but you know r- real life is real life and it ended 3-3 and whatever will take a point and uh that's four <laughs> points out of a possible six in our first two games which god knows is better than we've done in the last few years so off to an awesome start and most importantly fans are back football is back it just it felt great and the the stats seem good yeah we outplayed them more shots more possession, better pass accuracy, more passes. Yeah. No, we played great. I mean, I re and and we are fun to watch, like counter pressing, because the because all of our players are so young, they're so fast, you know, <laughs> like they just run and run, and they're just. It was awesome. It was a joy to watch, and it's so clear that this Wimbledon team gets it, like knows knows the community, knows the history, you know that that. This is an important part of becoming a Wimbledon player is understanding that like you're not playing for some rich owner. You're playing for mm-hmm. the fans mm-hmm. who own the team. So it's it was beautiful. It was, I, yeah, it was a really special day. What's the news from Mars? Well, the news from Mars after six months, can you believe it's been six months of driving wow. on uh, driving around on Mars? No. Perseverance has taken its first sample or it attempted to take its first sample by drilling into a rock. Uh, and then putting that into a tube, uh, it went perfectly. In fact, Jennifer Trosper of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory said it went really well, other than that the rock behaved in a way that didn't allow us to get any sample in the tube. <laughs> so the <laughs> everything, the everything was mixed. great. Um, <laughs> is there something weird about Martian rocks that we don't know about? Because didn't we have a somewhat similar issue with trying to like drill into the surface to get the Mars quake data? So there's a, there is a very slight chance that Mars doesn't actually exist. And that when we try and get Mars into a tube, Mars is like, poof. I'm not actually here, but very small, only a very small chance. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that seems uh, seems really unlikely. I have to say I can (laughs) see it up in the sky. Yeah. Uh huh. Trosper says we need a more cooperative type of rock. This one was Mm. crumbly. It may have had a surface that was hard, but once we got in there, all the grains just sort of came apart. So Mm. they're trying to like uh, get get a hunk of rock that sort of like is a like a like a tiny core. uh, And this didn't happen. It just sort of like turned to powder. Mm. Um, But but they did want to get one vial that was full of Martian air. So they have one of those. Oh, good. And uh, they have 43 more sample tubes. So there are lots of more chances to try and get some Mars into some tubes uh, that will eventually theoretically then be collected by a future mission and and brought back to Earth is Is the idea. Is there a possibility that these tubes can be collected by an unmanned mission to Mars? Yeah. 
So it's possible that like that is the that's the plan. Okay, so but we we still have to develop an ability to get something to Mars that can get back to Earth, which we haven't done yet. Yeah, yeah. Hank, we got a question about this recently that I thought was really interesting, and I'd like to hear your perspective on it. Somebody wrote in to ask if we had to, in terms of where the technology is, if there were like, Mm -hmm. you know, if we absolutely had to get a person to Mars or we absolutely had to get something to Mars that could get back, could we? Yeah. Okay. Yes. I mean, I mean, not like, not like tomorrow, like there'd be a large process of building things. It would depend on what the, the objectives of the mission were. If the objectives were to put a person, make a boot print in the dirt and then put them back on the thing and, and launch, that would have obviously be a lot less of an intensive project than trying to create a you know, months or years long mission to to actually do some research because mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a long trip. So you're gonna wanna you're gonna wanna uh, spend some time there once you uh, once you arrive, right? But if you just want to do the thing, that is a lot easier because you don't have to take as much food, you don't have to take as much stuff to sort of uh, make sure that you can continue to sustain life on the surface of Mars. But yeah, we we could do it with current technology, and in fact, we we could have done it with current technology twenty years ago. It was just would be ludicrously expensive and it's just it's getting cheaper as we get better at the science and technology and engineering necessary to get uh to get all of that done so maybe 2027 isn't off off the cards completely well no i mean if like we if we really had to we could do it it's just that uh when i made the bet it it was not 2021 <laughs> right yeah no i understand <laughs> <laughs> there was more, there was more uncertainty in it back then. Yeah, what a great bet. I mean, I wish that I I wish that I'd picked different stakes. I wish that I'd picked I don't know, like a million dollars. But I will take yeah. changing the name of the podcast. <laughs> well, I for one still haven't given up hope, Hank. I think that on January first, twenty twenty eight, there is still a chance that this podcast will be named Dear Hank and John. Mostly, I can't believe that we're almost definitely going to still be doing it in 2028. Well, I don't want to go to almost definitely. A lot could happen. I mean, a lot. It's true. Could happen. Brain-eating amoeba. That's all. You need need one amoeba in the nose. As you know, Hank, I do not like to tempt fate. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. Well, hey, I think that that's correct. Because if one of us dies of a brain-eating amoeba, this will... (laughs) be a really shitty episode of Dear Hank and John. Yeah, exactly. Everybody's going to be like, man, they really, they predicted it. And that is a, that is a highly unlikely thing to predict. It would be very humbling. <laughs> no, I don't know that, don't know that you could have posthumous humbling. <laughs> I'm assuming it's you who dies. <laughs> well, I do not, I do not spend a lot of time with my uh, head underwater. <laughs> So I, I don't. I think it's not likely to be me. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. We're off now to record our Patreon-only podcast this weekend. Stuff at Patreon.com/slash Dear Hank and John. Thank you all for listening, and thank you for your wonderful questions emailed to us at HankandJohn at gmail.com. Another piece of information: Delete this is sort of has a little bit started to come back occasionally. We had we had an episode last week. Probably have another one this week, but who knows? Uh, and you can find that by searching for Delete This. It's my podcast with Catherine, where we talk about Twitter and my Twitter and how I'm doing and also just make, mostly we just make jokes. 
This podcast is edited by Joseph Tunamedish. It's produced by Rosiana Halsrohas and Sheridan Gibson. Our communications coordinator is Julia Bloom. Our editorial assistant is Debuki Chakravarti. The music you're hearing now and at the beginning of the podcast is by the great Gunnarola. And as they say in our hometown, don't, don't forget, forget to be, be awesome. awesome.